The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed during this or any broadcast belong solely to our guests or our hosts. These broadcasts do not represent or reflect the views of their employers, sponsors, or affiliated organizations. Welcome to the Flipboard EDU Podcast with your host, William Jeffrey, where we collaborate, communicate, and educate with the greatest educators in the world on Flipboard. Let's start the show. What's up, Flipboard fam? This is your favorite coach, Coach Jeffrey, and I'm here with the incomparable Stacey Boudry and the Hall of Famer, Dr. Michael Milstead. Now that the protests are no longer the biggest news story and Black Lives Matter is not trending on social media, I wanted to address the elephant in the room. I noticed that a lot of educators on Twitter were standing with the cause and using their platform to express outrage in the oppressive and senseless murder of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and others who lost their lives in police custody. I am hopeful that many of my peers are seeing the deeper causes that led to his killing and are willing to continue the fight against systemic racism that has ingrained itself in the fabric of America. As an educator and African-American man, I am committed to doing my part to keep the momentum going and to make this a tipping point in the fight for equality and justice. In this week's episode, we discuss racial bias, racist gatekeeping tenants, and possible solutions with some of the smartest people I know in education. We invited Dr. Michael Moody, founder of Insight Advance, along with his senior vice president, Dr. Andrea Thomas Reynolds, who both lead meaningful work with teachers, school districts, and administrators to improve instructional practices and K-12 education with video coaching and student-centered high-yield strategy. We also invited Dr. Josue Falace, founder of the GOMO Educational Services and former director of Rutgers University Institute for Improving Student Achievement. Dr. Falace's perspective in this conversation is welcome and much needed. Last but not least, we invited my former undergraduate classmate from Prairie View Annam University, Dr. Adana J. Johnson, the Associate Vice President for Student Equity and Inclusion at Georgetown University. Dr. Johnson has always been brilliant, and I'm thrilled she made time for our show. Join us as we collaborate, communicate, and educate with the best educators in the world on Flipboard EDU Podcast. Yeah, absolutely. And first of all, before I get into the question again, I'd just like to thank each of the panelists again for being on our show. You know, we're extremely fortunate to have such a distinguished group of uh, educators for, for this broadcast. You know, guys, we have all arrived at a pivotal point in, in U.S. school system history. Many people across America and the world denouncing social justice and systemic uh, racism. And so with schools across America reopening, they too will be faced with the moral obligation of addressing the racial disparities that for far too long have plagued children of color. With that being said, what is your, what is your definition, what is your view of the 
systemic racism. And also, in your view, is that a problem with our educational system? Dr. Moody, you're from the Bay Area. I went to Berkeley High School, so I'm going to start with you. Okay. I mean, the way I kind of think about systemic racism is just that systems that are in place to either create or maintain this racial inequality that we see, particularly for students of color um, in our schools. Um, I think we see it in every system, right? And education is no exception. I think we see it deeply in education. And I think we're kidding ourselves if we pretend we don't. I think we've kind of convoluted a lot of problems recently, but it doesn't take long to kind of, if you dig in and look at the lots of data points, you'll see it kind of surfacing, right? If we look at achievement data, if we look at discipline data, if we look at data on the quality of teachers and how they're assigned, all of those, you know, we start to, if you, if you just cut any of that data by race, we start to see very quickly that students of color are generally on the lower end of whatever data set we're looking at. And to me, that's just further, you know, evidence that we need to kind of really dig in and start to really unpack what that means and kind of what does it look like in education. Um, I was just going to um, add to what Michael was saying is that um, systemic racism, not only in education, but across the board, housing, healthcare, workforce, and nine yards. And as we think about it, particularly in school, we usually see it manifested um in discipline reports, where there's usually a higher number of students of color who are being reported for discipline problems. So, uh, we see it in terms of opportunities, scholarship opportunities for students as well. So I do think it, it is um, an issue um, for this entire country as well as in our K-12 public uh, and charter. So I was asked this question um, a couple of last week as far as explain to me by systemic racism. And I said um, it comes in the form of structural inequality, where everything as far as structures are designed for certain groups to fail. And if we're looking at groups or, and, and, and by entity, we're going to focus on race being that. So when the dominant race um, overpowers or establishes everything to be able to um, diminish or demi- uh, everything to the demise of someone of another race that's not of um, a person of color, basically black. So right. from a person from a, a point where a young parent or any type of parent that's of color tries to have a baby um, or is having a baby. Where they try to have their child, if they have poor hospital services and they're unable to give proper nutrition to their child, that starts nothing. Then um, then they go to the certain areas where no one wants to live, but that's where they live. Then they have maybe not have great school systems. And then let's go beyond there because they're in school systems that are maybe not so great. Um, the um, teachers, preparation programs, everything. Then now you got suspension. That's another thing. Then the, right. the, um, housing, nutrition, I mean, everything keeps going on. It's like it's a cyclical thing that keeps um, keeping them down, oppressing them, and not giving them the opportunity. And it's all based on race. So th- that's where the system works. It keeps compounding politics, um, how, like I said, everything, employment. And it's all uh, circumscribed to race. And then the education system, as I said before, and, and um, Michael and, and uh, Dr. Moody and Dr. Thomas Reynolds stated, it's all, it's a cycle. And it's unfortunate it's all circumscribed to race. You know, I was, I was just thinking about what, what you guys were discussing, particularly with you, Dr. Blake. You know, Dr. Anthony Fauci today, I guess the U.S. leading coronavirus expert, uh, he was meeting with lawmakers today in Washington, D.C. And he made a statement that he said one of the biggest reasons uh, that the virus is disproportionate killing uh, blacks and people of color is, is due to racism. And it kind of had me reflect, you know, were we doing some of the same things in our school, racism killing some of the educational opportunities for our kids? Anybody would like to address that? I'm going to throw this in, and I'm going to oh. tag Dr. Uh, Janicki on this one. 
Um, so I, I was at home upset and I could not understand why I was so upset. And it just so happened that I turned on an Instagram live and Dr. Johnson Janaki was talking about how Mm -hmm. racism is killing us. And it was so profound that she was sitting outside. She said, I just needed some time to, to decompress. And she started to talk about how um, racism is killing us and how, you know, we watched this man die on, on TV like multiple times. And we know that students of color has, has had a relative or somebody that's in their family that has been oppressed by the police. And then they're going to come into the school system with that same, and they're already uh, punitively and disproportionately punished. And so I just couldn't understand why I, I didn't really didn't take note of myself until I heard Dr. Johnson um, talking about that. Dr. Johnson, if you could just shed a little light on what you said during that, that um, Instagram. Um, sure. Um, thank you for the invitation of being here. I really appreciate being amongst all these esteemed educators. Um, really, it was just a moment of reflection for me on, um, you know, a lot of the work that I do every day, but thinking about it in its totality. And, you know, this question about systemic racism recognizing, you know, I don't think that it is overkill to talk about the fact that race is a social construction, right? There's no biological basis for race. And so when you understand that point, then you understand, you can begin to understand and unpack the fact that it is strategic, that there are a group of people who are intentionally subjugating another group of people and that there are others who are complicit in that system of subjugation. You know, part of what I was speaking to in that video, I just was personally overwhelmed with the, the things that were being brought to me at work as a, um, a higher ed administrator, um, my observations of what's happening in the world, uh, particularly the black and brown bodies, being a parent of a six-year-old who is in school outside of the home, just the totality of that, but that there's a continuum of racism. Right. And this is where people can be complicit and, you know, they they kind of absolve themselves of a personal responsibility in that it's not just the kneeling on necks, right, that is racist. It is the questioning whether or not someone um, is worthy to be in a classroom to be a teacher. It's questioning whether or not someone comes from a home where they're loved and cared for. Um, it's questioning whether or not someone has the ability to do the work that's put before them or to perform the job that they have been positioned to do. And um, in the video, I was referencing the work of David Williams, who is a sociologist and a public health professor at Harvard University. And he's written hundreds and hundreds of articles on racism. And one of the things that he talks about is the cumulative effects of racism, right? So we have these these enormous, profound things that happen, um, like what happened to Breonna Taylor, for example. Um, but we also have these day-to-day things that happen to us, right? The microaggressions and the microassaults, these daily subtle slights. Um, and there, there have been all of these memes and videos that liken them to many things. But one of the things that I find to be most impactful in understanding it is, you know, the, the notion of getting a paper cut, somebody insulting your intelligence, or somebody giving you poor service because of who you are, right? That these little tiny slices, you know, you get one paper cut in the course of a work day, 
not the end of the world. Doesn't feel great, but you get five, ten, fifteen a day every day for decades, right? What does that do to your health? And, and um, mm-hmm. Dr. Williams talks about how that impacts you cognitively, um, mm-hmm. affectively. So if it's affecting you emotionally and affecting your thinking, what does that do to your performance in the classroom? What does that do to your performance in your job? What does that do to your ability to parent and and have emotional space to tend to your family? Um, and so it's, it's this continuum and a totality of, of the impact of, of systemic um, oppression and strategic subjugation that happens to black people um, and other uh, non-white folks in the United States and all over the world. Okay, that was deep. I appreciate it. That was great. That was a great answer. Great producers, productive people. Here we go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I used to try to study with her, but she wouldn't study with me. I was slow. I was just going to add with what Dr. Johnson stated. It makes you think about the other things that really fail the, the black race, such as high blood pressure, hypertension, mm-hmm. you know, all right. of those other things that we tend to have uh, disproportionately in our race largely because of that paper cut that's 10 times over on a daily basis for decades. You know, that's a, a very visually compounding way of really thinking about it. Good point. I think what concerns me um, as a parent is that I have dealt with it in a certain way. And I now look at my children. This has really brought a forefront to my children. We are living in a pretty affluent area. My, my children, um, don't really understand the true struggle of what it takes. They haven't really um, grown up with many barriers or the barriers we've constantly tried to remove. And, and however, this was brought to the, uh, their direct forefront of how we've always had the police conversation. We've always had the respect your teacher conversation. We've always had it do what you're told the first time because that's what, that's how we have to prepare our students. But unfortunately, as an assistant principal, I meet students who don't get that same initial training at home. And unfortunately, it does affect their teachers adversely and it adversely affects their education. Um, and thank you all for the insight. I, I really feel the paper clip or paper cut is such a, a good way to describing and helping everyone understand, especially being white, understanding um, what that's like. And, and I'm thankful for my friends that teach me every day. Um, but thinking about that and along those lines, what is white fragility and does it exist in education? Uh, specifically thinking about the Karen and Ken phenomena, um, if anybody would like to answer to that or share your, what your thoughts are? Um, the Karen and Ken, this, this question was specifically brought up because I, I have seen it in the past in teachers. I, I have seen teachers overreact about bringing students to the office because they don't have a belt. And so you make it, they make a big deal about the student not have a belt because they're not in dress code. And they constantly send, send these students to the office and because they broke the dress code, so I have to talk to the student, and then I send the student back. And then the next day, it's the same thing. And then they see the same student in the hallway, knowing that that same student who they sent to the office does not have a belt. They send them back to the office because they need a belt. Or they have on a hoodie, and you got to go. You are not in dress code. You have to go home. And so my question is, as an administrator, has anybody else seen that behavior? 
or is that something that I've experienced? I see Dr. Johnson shaking her hands up and down. <laughs> you want to share? Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm just co- co-signing all of those observations. Um, before I was a um, professor, I worked as a school counselor in K-12. And, um, you know, it, it is painfully obvious the, the, the divergent responses to black and brown children compared to responses to white children and their behaviors. And, you know, one of the things that I, I can't help but do is to make a connection. You know, if we talk about the preschool to prison pipeline, for example, I can't help but make a connection to um, that micro uh, management of behavior and the uh, disproportionate application of, of the rules to black and brown children as a way of, of control, right? Uh, I was being interviewed this past Friday for a nonprofit by, by a nonprofit organization out here in Maryland, in Baltimore. And I was asked about understanding police and, and people's reaction to police. And so when I think about how children are policed in school, black, black and brown children are policed in school, that, that belt example that you give, William, is, is a microcosm of what happens to, to black and brown folks who's walking down the street, right? Stop and frisk in, in New York State is an example of that. New York City is an example of that. You know, questioning, do you belong here, right? Why are you walking down the street? And so um, picking out some piece of you to, you know, that is really minutia is of little consequence. Picking out that thing to then plus you from um, your activities of daily living, your 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 normal day to day, right, is a disruption, and it is intended to communicate some things very very clearly. In my opinion, it is commun- it is to communicate to you that you do not belong, that something is wrong with you, that you need to be micromanaged, you cannot manage yourself, and that the smallest infraction will be held against you very harshly. Right, which instills a great deal of terror into very young children. I, I don't know how many of you have seen a recent video that's been floating around social media of a young girl crying profusely in an encounter with a police officer in her neighborhood, a woman officer, a, a white woman officer, and a black girl in her neighborhood, and she's just bawling. Just as young a girl, right? Officer, very young. Yeah, um, couldn't couldn't have been older than seven or eight. So when you have someone that young have such a profound vitriolic reaction to law enforcement. That doesn't come out of nowhere. She's been socialized to have that terror, whether that's through television, you know, social media, through stories um, from a family member, through her own observations, that vicarious traumatization that happens. It triggers that response. And so for me, all of those things are very clearly connected. And I know sometimes people might think that that's a leap, but it is setting you up to be socialized a certain way um, to respond to law enforcement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can I add just further to that, especially to that last question uh, with the white fragility? We saw the example in the Central Park where the woman was able to call the cops and basically fake her way to criminalizing this black man. And thank goodness he videotaped himself because otherwise he would have been incarcerated today. Absolutely. So that's a, a great example of, of white fragility and the white tears and thinking that people would fall for it. And in some cases, they normally wouldn't. Again, this time, 
um, this guy was able to, to um, capture it. And as, as we have this technology age and people are videotaping things, that's the way they're going to move towards exoneration. But what about all those other people in the past? But even more so, they've got this, they've become conditioned to just, I'm so fragile, you have to worry about me, basically dehumanizing anyone of color, especially the blacks, because of um, Khalil Muhammad's book, The Conversation of Blackness, just saying that black people were inferior biologically, you know, socially, medically, and all these things making it more criminal for black. And there's, you know, you see the movie The 13th uh, on Netflix, another one is keeps demeaning and subjugating people of color, but mainly black people. I like to concur with both Dr. Johnson and then Dr. Belay. You know, the thing is, is that, you know, our, our black kids, I think a lot of times due to racism is traumatized or traumatized. That is a lot of times, even when they just enter into the school. You think about how many times a, a, a black kid, teenage one, and even adult, I mean, it's happened to me. You walk by a, a, a white lady or a group of whites, uh, they start grabbing their purses and clutching uh, bags, and you pass by the car, they're locking doors when you're walking by. I mean, all those type of little subtle things, uh, and it, it just impacts, as Dr. Johnson says, it just impacts the psyche of kids. And it's amazing to me uh, how kids have been able to succeed. Not, you know, they, they have not performed at the highest level that they can, but with all of this that they see and do that's against them on a daily basis, be it in person, on TV, or, you know, in movies, or what have you, all the stereotypes that they run up against as Blacks, uh, how they still are able to, you know, to form well in school. So it can be quite traumatic. Uh, you know, and it starts, way earlier than I think most people acknowledge, white people, yeah. I should say, acknowledge. I mean, when we look at even preschool, we're seeing just these extraordinarily high rates of things like suspension for four, three, four-year-olds, which is crazy if you think about it, but, you know, the, they're much higher, kind of the disproportionality is significant. I think the white fragility kind of hits it at a certain point because when you, you know, we work, can we work in schools with teachers and, and school leaders and districts? And one of the things, you know, like white fragility resonates with me. Obviously, I'm a white guy, right? So, kind of, I, I can relate to it to a certain extent because I've lived it. Um, and as we work with teachers in, in these systems, even when you start to raise these kind of issues, white fragility too, to me, is a little bit about that defensiveness, right? Like, you're there's an assumption that because we're naming something, that we're n- naming kind of who the people are, or judging their character, essentially. <laughs> we may or may not be, but um, but kind of in all of that kind of work we see this defensiveness as white fragility come up real quickly because people automatically kind of settle into that defensiveness and it's hard to get through that, right? And so we don't have a lot of acknowledgement at school sites to say like, maybe this really is a problem or maybe maybe kind of who I am and kind of the fact that I'm white and I'm carrying something to the classroom that I'm not fully aware of is really impacting how I deal with students, how I interact with students, kind of even these microaggressions that I don't necessarily see myself doing. And so I think one of the challenges with white fragility specifically and kind of in the context of education is how do we start to get people to be more reflective in this work? And, and, and what's the entry point for folks? Like, how do we get them out of this kind of fragile state and this defensiveness into a place where they can actually sit and listen and hear and believe what they're hearing? Because at the end of the day, like, we all got to move forward in a specific direction and just falling on kind of deaf ears if, we, if people sit in this defensive place. And so I think kind of your last question about why fragility, I think it's really problematic and really damaging in certain ways because we, we don't move past certain parts of the conversation because people aren't willing to engage because they just they sit into this defensiveness of like, it's not me. <laughs> I'm not racist. Mm-hmm. So that's not, right. you know, I wasn't thinking I was racist. And so because that wasn't my conscious thought, then that's not what was happening. And so we're very quick 
to, to deny what was actually going on rather than kind of being reflective of how it might be interpreted or even kind of what we're doing and kind of where it came from. Yeah, I think that, you know, what you're describing um, very well is cognitive dissonance, yeah. right? And so, um, you know, before we were using Karen, we were talking about the Becky, right? The barbecue Becky that you just, you're, you're in the park and you see a group of black people barbecuing and just enjoying their, minding their black business, as my sister would say. And um, you feel a sense of being threatened. And so part of that is the dissonance, the dissonance that people experience, that white people experience when they see black folks um, and, and engaging in activities of their daily lives that have nothing to do with them that they have implicit reactions to. And they don't know what to do with it, right? And so part of what happens with that defensiveness when it's called out, uh, when aversive racism is called out, it's like, oh, wait, no, that's not, that's not me. That's not me. That's not me. And so I think in terms of a school context, people who hold positions of leadership, uh, people who are administrators and lead teachers have to start with the baseline of we are all racist. If we're white and we were socialized in the United States, we are fundamentally operating from a place of racism. And it is until we are actively engaged in being anti-racist in our ways of thinking and behaving that we can even claim that we're not, you know, succumbing to this implicit bias that's inherent and insidious in our daily existence in the world. I mean, that's, that's a huge part of work within um, police uh, departments, right? Addressing the implicit bias. The bias that makes you click that trigger before you even think about it. To lock that car door, to clutch your purse before you even think about it. You are socialized from birth to think that way. And so the fragility comes with being confronted with, oh, a black person can hold the same space that I can hold. Or someone is telling me that my perception of black people is a challenging perception. I have defensiveness against that. Because even though if I'm challenged and pushed, I might hold some beliefs that are actually pretty congruent with that notion. And that's a really tough pill to swallow. That That would make somebody want to crumble. Right. And so um, I think understanding that this is not something that just sort of arises for people. As we talk about racism in that context of it is a fundamental part of the structure and fiber of our country, then it is a little bit easier to let those defenses down. Um, This is not to absolve people of personal responsibility, but it's to say that if you woke up white this morning in the United States, and you're not actively, consciously trying not to be racist, you probably have some racist ways of thinking and behaving. So it's off. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. And you ended that on well, time. Good. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, so <laughs> that's the end of our show. That's that's the end of the show. <laughs> <laughs> that's just the end. That went fast. That was amazing. That was Wait a minute. That I, I thought we were going an hour tonight. Hey, man. We are. <laughs> This is it. That's, 40 minutes with Zoom. Yeah, 40 minutes, baby. I wanted to go an hour, but we had to switch. Flipboard fam, do you know what time it is? It is time for Flip Tip. 
Today's flip tip is brought to you by Janet Spire. A curator is always looking for great ideas. Here are some suggestions to trigger your creative juices on Flipboard. Number one, follow topics on Flipboard. Number two, follow the today section to get inspiration. Number three, follow users that you admire, maybe because their curation can trigger ideas for your magazines. Number four, follow the hashtags, mags we love, flipped edu, food mags we love, and marketers lounge for more ideas. You can find these tips and others on Janet's YouTube channel or in our Flipboard EDU podcast magazine. Thanks, Janet. Flipboard fam, that was an excellent episode. I'd like to thank our very special guests, Dr. Moody, Dr. Thomas Reynolds, Dr. Felace, Dr. Johnson, Dr. Michael Milstead, and Stacey Boudry for a magnificent conversation that we hope will lead to action in your school. We'll be back on the air in about two weeks. I hope you will join us as we continue this and many other conversations on Flipboard EDU Podcast. Subscribe to our Flipboard EDU Podcast magazine.